Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, we, you know, we're going to have the battle of accents here. We're going to have a little bit of Spanglish with my accent from Spain and then also with the accent of our incredible founder, you know, originally, you know, also from Venezuela. I think that we're going to really enjoy this one because, you know, he's bringing really this incredible experience around the growth, scaling, uh, not only now with what he's doing, but with previous companies too. And uh, and we're going to really enjoy, you know, his journey of building, scaling, financing, and what he's up to with his own company now. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Vicente Savarce. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the for the intro and, and for having me on the show and for the kind words. Happy to be here. So originally born in Caracas, in Venezuela, you know, how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Yeah, um, I uh, um, I was born in Caracas, like you said, and I and I and I uh, stayed there until I was seventeen years old. So I I did all my schooling uh, years there until until high school. Um, but growing up, I I think um, the country while I was growing up went through like an increasing probably turmoil in in both political but also most importantly economical. Like um, probably the last you know before twenty eighteen. Uh, the 10 years before that, from 2008 to 2018, Venezuela had the worst hyperinflation in the world. And um, I could definitely see that happening uh, before I left um, in 2012. Uh, but growing up there, it was, you know, it's a beautiful country, 30 million people. It's one of the countries in Latin America with the most cities, over a million people. And it's, it obviously has, as many of you know, the largest oil reserves in the world. And ultimately, an installed GDP capacity already that makes the country pretty interesting. Um, but obviously, it went through this turmoil. Uh, production of oil went down, and and the economy got pretty bad. But I think it's it's a really interesting geo, and obviously really really close to my heart. And it is the main country where where I do business today with uh, Yami, which is the the company I created. Uh, oh. But yeah, after after growing up in, in in Caracas, I ended up going to school in in Boston. And we'll talk about Yami in just a little bit. You know, I guess saying growing up in an environment that was so unstable, you know, the lack of security, the lack of, um, you know, stability, I guess dealing with the uncertainty too, no? I guess what, 
what, how do you think that shaped who you are today? That, that's really interesting. I, I think that I, I learned that whatever, whatever I did, I, after uh, leaving Venezuela, I had to do for myself. And I, you know, I don't come from a particularly super wealthy family. And so in a way, everything, everything I've done in my career has, has been on, on my own. And I think it, it has definitely been this feeling that I just, whatever happens is, is on me. Uh, you know, the, the stake is, is on me. And uh, that probably has an impact. And it, it has probably led me to, to become an entrepreneur. And probably a lot of people, I actually find that a lot of the people that have left Venezuela, many of them that become entrepreneurs, I, I think they're really good. And it's mainly, it comes from this place of um, having to, to build from nothing. So in your case, as you were saying, you came eventually to the U.S. Uh, to do your, your degree in finance and entrepreneurship. So I guess when you came here, you know, to Northeastern University, how was that the experience like of coming here to the U.S., you know, the incredible land of opportunity, everything? I mean, I'm sure that that was pretty, pretty impressive for you to, to look around. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it was interesting because I, I had gone to the U.S. a bunch, like as a tourist before. Um, but going to school there was just so different because um, there were just so many resources around, you know, uh, helping you be who you want to be. Um, one of the first things I actually did uh, when I got to school um, was join the Entrepreneurs Club of Northeastern. And it was this amazing organization that just brought like really good speakers, uh, former entrepreneurs. And, and one of the first speakers I, I heard um, just was really inspiring just to see what they were able to build from, from nothing and um, how they thought about new opportunities. And it was just this really entrepreneurial mindset that probably differently from Venezuela um, was willing to fail and saw failure as an acceptable part of their journey. Um, and like, yeah, you know, we, I, this, this speaker, I remember vividly the story of, yeah, my, my first business went terribly. Um, you know, I raised $5 million and it went to zero. And uh, now I've built this, this other business that now is profitable and, and we might IPO soon, et cetera. And that was who I was hearing. And I was like, wow, like this person just like admitted to like a pretty horrible failure um, in front of me, which, which was uh, new. And I have really embraced that, the fact that failure is acceptable and part of life and it's how, how societies progress. Now, in your case, it sounds like entrepreneurship was the path that you wanted to do. I mean, you even studied that in university. So why did you explore the investment banking side of things instead of just going at it right away? Yeah, I think uh, just like anyone, I think I had a few ideas of what I, what I could do. Uh, and banking, I just thought would give me uh, a breadth of knowledge of other businesses that would help me shape my thinking around what I wanted to do. And yeah, I went into investment banking. We were uh, doing M&A for tech companies, always representing the founders in an M&A process. And there, I just fell in love with the founder journeys. And these were entrepreneurs that were either probably between seven to 15 years into their journey as, as founders. A lot of them were bootstrapped, um, which was really inspiring. And they ended up having these really successful and life-changing outcomes. But one of the things I, uh, that's, I think, when I realized that I really, really wanted to be an entrepreneur, the main common theme I saw is people were creating value out of thin air. And that just felt like the closest thing to magic that I could dedicate my life to do.
um, just building companies that can change the way communities, cities, countries, regions, or the world work, depending on the scale of the business. So let's talk about how you really venture into the entrepreneurial world. I mean, you did it, you know, first, I, I honestly think that you did it in the right way because people go at it right away. You know, in this case, you kind of like got your feet wet, got to really experience how companies were doing it. And then basically you went at it, no? But in your case, you know, what you experienced was being part of Wayfair, being part of Postmates, uh, and then get around before you really pull the trigger. Uh, now, in your case, you know, it's quite a quite the switch going from investment banking to all of a sudden really developing an expertise around uh, growth, you know, growth hacking and and scaling and how do you acquire more customers and channels. And I mean, out of all things, why did you decide to dive into that segment of, 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 of startups? Yeah, um, it, it, it's interesting. In banking, um, in this M&A deals I was handling, the most common theme I found in consumer startups, which was what called my attention the most for, for me to build it, was that without a proper growth marketing, highly technical team that understands how to track attribution of a new customer, that understands lifetime value of a customer and understands the cost to acquire that customer and the payback period that is acceptable to the company. If the company doesn't get that right, pretty much at product market fit, um, I find that the company has trouble later, um, even after raising a Series A or Series B. And so I realized that that skill set, or in my opinion at the time, my thesis was, I think this is probably the most, if all CEOs are generalists, but with a specialty, I think that if I am a generalist CEO and founder that has a specialty in growth marketing and growth hacking on consumer, for consumer uh, as a category in startups, it would probably be one of the most important skills to have. And I fast forward to today, I really, I really believe it was the the right bet. It could have gone wrong, and and I would have iterated in, in myself. But I think that really worked out, and that's why I ended up going to Wafer. Wafer was actually the place that I could go that thought of um, growth marketing hires as not necessarily with prior marketing experience. But they actually hired, their approach was really interesting. They hired a wide breadth of people that had a highly analytical role in their past. And for me, that was banking. But one of my peers was this person that went to school for biotech. And they were like part of their 1% graduating class in biotech. And this was like a highly analytical person that thought about testing in a really methodical approach in a lab. And that approach could be replicated um, in growth marketing. And so with that hiring mindset, I thought Wafer would be perfect for me to really experiment and, and understand growth. Um, and that's where I think I got my, my schooling in growth marketing at Wafer, actually. So what was your takeaway, you know, when it came to, um, to growth and, and acquiring users from, because I mean, on average, you spend about a year and change, you know, with Wafer, Postmates, and then also get around. So what were the the main takeaways, if you had to take just one takeaway from each one of those companies, you know, when it came to acquiring users and, and distribution channels and how to think about that in order to scale and grow, what was the key takeaway from each one of those experiences? Yeah, definitely. I think at Wafer, uh, I think the main learning was um, opinions don't matter, data does. Um, it was It was just a place where People could have opinions, but when the data showed some something different, 
everyone really went in the direction of the data. And it was just a highly data-driven organization, one of the, one of the most I've, I've encountered in, in my career. Um, Postmates, I would say that the, normally a growth marketer would say, you know, I'm optimizing for, for a low CAC and a high LTV. And so we should just allocate our money uh, regionally based on the lowest uh, CAC or the highest LTV to CAC. And the problem with that approach is that Postmates and delivery businesses and ride-sharing businesses like on-demand economy is a highly hyper-local business. And what really mattered was to dominate um, hyper-localities or cities in this case. Um, even though a user, to give you an example for Postmates in LA, even though a user in LA could have been at times more expensive than a user in, say, Atlanta um, or, you know, Austin, Texas, um, we needed to prioritize LA because it's where we were uh, market share kings and we needed to continue growing in penetration to successfully ensure that no matter how big the budget that someone else had, um, someone that came with a big budget, we were able to say, we have all of the consumers and all of the merchants in our marketplace will always see more revenue from us than from another player. And so uh, I think my biggest takeaway from Postmates was that the metrics that a growth marketer looks like, looks at normally, might not be the end answer of a business goal. And in this case, the hyper-locality of Postmates makes it so. Um, and then in Get Around, I think I really learned the importance of not only driving demand, but driving supply. Because for the first time, I had to lead all of you. At Postmates, I was leading all of user acquisition, but focused on the demand side. And to me, uh, I just saw you know, the lack of merchants or the lack of drivers of things that hurt my conversion rate. When I went to get around, it, I really realized that I could drive all the demand that I want, but if I don't have the cars for people to rent, then my effort is completely irrelevant. And I think I, I learned that the supply comes first and that our true client in a lot of these marketplaces is not the consumer because the consumer is getting a real benefit and a, and a real convenience, but the driver or the car, the car host, uh, or in Airbnb's case, for example, the hosts are the true client. And I, and I really believe that the supply is normally your, your true consumer, the, the true part of the ecosystem that you care about the most. So now here you are, you know, working at GetAround, and it's about 2020. What felt different, you know, at this point? What, what felt, you know, what gave you kind of like the thinking that uh, it was time? It was time for you to start your own thing now. I just felt really ready. Uh, I felt like I had a really deep understanding of, of acquisition and growth marketing. And um, of course, I can always learn more. Um, but I also felt like um, contributing to someone else's journey and to someone, you know, someone else's net worth other than um, my own and, you know, building an ecosystem of something or creating value in a way where I didn't have the final call, even though I started to value more and more my own opinion, um, just didn't seem right anymore. And I felt, but the biggest, the biggest pieces, I just felt ready. I felt that I had dominated a specialty um, and I had a good enough uh, of a generalist approach to things that I felt like it was a good time to try something. And at the same time, actually, the other thing that was different is 
um, Venezuela had been dollarizing. I, I saw this effect of, you know, in 2018, late 2018, um, the government starts uh, to make some decisions that it starts behaving a little bit less like Cuba and more like China in a lot of things. Um, still with their, you know, socialist uh, ideology, but with an approach of we do want, you know, the economy to thrive and private businesses to thrive. And the first thing they did, the most important one, in my opinion, is they uh, allow the free flow of capital or the free, free, free flow of money. They remove capital controls. Um, in Venezuela, you had to go through the government to exchange local currency for USD or euros or whatever, or you had to go to a black market that had the crazy pricing that was driving inflation. And for the first time ever, you could just exchange local currency into whatever uh, with no problem, and you could move money in and out of Venezuela with no issues anymore. And the result was the economy since 2018 to 2019 dollarized pretty heavily to the point where 50% uh, of transactions on the ground were happening on USD and not paying the law firm or paying the tech team. It was if you went to a hot dog stand, New York style hot dog stand in the street, it was $2 for a hot dog. And when I saw this happening, I thought that there was no going back. And I realized that hyperinflation would probably slow down. And that regardless of geopolitical risk, I thought to myself, um, if we can make an ecosystem win, it doesn't really matter what, whatever the ideology of, of you know, the regulators is, uh, everyone will win, right? The, the gig economy workers in, in an ecosystem like Ayami uh, or a Postmates or, or one of these on-demand uh, startups will have new earning opportunities. Merchants in a, in a marketplace will be able to have incremental revenue. Um, and a lot of people will have some convenience of, of a complete vacuum of consumer offerings that are just not available. And when I realized this, I said, I think we, you know, Venezuela just hit macro bottom. And I think there's also a lot of countries that might not be suffering from the same hyperinflation, but are suffering from the same vacuum of consumer offerings that Venezuela is, that have low car ownership, that don't have access to good credit, that there's no financial inclusion, that don't have a VC ecosystem like Mexico or Brazil, and where there's just no tech entrepreneurs to come and fix it. And I just felt like an incredible amount of responsibility almost um, to do something about it. And after thinking about it for a while, I realized that after living in the U.S. for, for, 10, for, for almost 10 years back then, 11 years now, my American dream was really building companies and, and being very entrepreneurial like the American culture is and building it with a structure here in the U.S., but a company that is able to operate where I was born and where I grew up and in economies that share similarities where there's, you know, future young Vicentes that won the opportunity um, to, to see what I was able to see here. But I don't Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, 
which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers, and that's again go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So then let's talk about Yummy now. You know, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Yummy? How do you guys make money? Yeah, totally. So we are, so Yummy is a super app and, and that's a broad concept, but it's basically the idea is it's a one-stop shop in the form of an app where you can do anything and everything. And so the main things you can do in Yummy today, you can do, you can order restaurants uh, like DoorDash, you can order groceries like an Instacart or a GoPuff, uh, you can order pharmacy, uh, anything that's in a pharmacy, you can order clothing, electronics, anything you would find in a mall if it fits in the green backpack. And we call that vertical delivery of anything. Then we have a transportation vertical. So you can order a ride in a car or a motorcycle if you are a single passenger. You can order tickets for events. So for example, uh, last year we sold the National Baseball League. Baseball is the biggest sport in Venezuela. And we sold tickets for the National Baseball League uh, directly in our app in the form of, of digital uh, tickets. And uh, we will soon, our hope is to be able to include uh, a fintech offering. And, and we just got granted the sixth ever issued fintech license in Venezuela uh, earlier this year. So our hope is to be able to create a fintech that creates financial inclusion in the process as well. So I know that obviously, you know, for something like this, I mean, this is capital intensive. So you guys, you know, had to, um, you know, pursue money pursue, you know, getting this financed. And I know that at the beginning, it was not easy. You know, you had to convince your wife, you know, also to put all the savings in here. And uh, and I'm sure that was that was not a, that was quite a challenging time. So how did you guys go about that? And what was that process of finally, you know, getting this thing financed? Yeah, I think at the beginning, I was driving this and I was like, you know, like this, we need to do this. And, uh, you know, we're going to spend some money, but we didn't know how much. And then um, I think there was a point where she was actually the, the one that made me quit get around. When I started Yummy, I didn't just, you know, quit and start Yummy. Uh, for the, the first few months, I was, I was still uh, having a full-time job. And there was a day where, like, we had launched and, you know, the, the app was crashing. And, and, you know, there was so much going on in both my full-time job and, and Yummy. And I was, like, totally overwhelmed. And my wife got home from, from work and I was like, look, like I, I, I don't think I can do both. And I'm worried, you know, I'm, at this point, I, I have the bigger income between the two of us. I, I don't know that I should quit my full-time job. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm thinking that maybe I, I stop yummy because I think we might, we might just spend way too much money on this. And I don't think we're ready and it will be really hard to fundraise with Venezuela as the main uh, country. And uh, my wife basically stopped me and she said, uh, I agree that you need to do only one thing, but I think you need to quit, get around tomorrow. Um, and I was like, yeah, but what about, what about us money-wise? And she said, like, great, like, let's hit ramen for a little. I think that if this doesn't work, then we'll know in a couple of months and it will have been a, a good learning. And if it does work, then it will have absolutely been the right decision. And whatever time we a ramen for a little won't matter. And let's put all... Behind this, I, I, I think that you are uniquely positioned with your experience in growth and being from Venezuela to do this. And why not try? I think you could build something incredible. And effectively, the next day I quit. Uh, and we did have to uh, 
fund this ourselves uh, with our with our own savings for a while. We put over 100k behind that, and uh, our credit card was also like maxed out between all of them over like 50k in credit card debt. Pretty scary. But after four months, we were able to get the data to prove that there was a business that looked like a rocket ship that we were building and executing well. And we were able to convince the first angel investors to, to start backing us. And we ended up raising close to 500K um, in angel funding within, within the next you know, two to three month period. That's amazing because uh, now up until, uh, up until this point, how much capital have you guys raised for the business? Um, a little over $70 million to date. And yeah, function of it being a uh, capital intensive, you know, you need to acquire demand, you need to acquire supply. You also need to build in, in if I did this in the US, you just plug into Stripe or whatever uh, from a payment infrastructure perspective. But in, the, in, in, in Venezuela and places where this infrastructure hasn't been built before, we almost need to build a small little companies that build that infrastructure to build our own core business as well. And how is that the uh, process of being able to operate, you know, a business in Venezuela where, you know, you have uh, people that are senior executives outside of Venezuela? I mean, in your case, for example, you are in Los Angeles. So, I mean, how do you and other members of the team are able to, um, to, to, to run and to execute effectively from the distance? Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, a member of the management team just goes every couple of months to, to the operation, but we also have incredible people that I even started this with or that have joined along the way that are the key players of Yami that are local, right? That are in Venezuela and Bolivia where we operate today. Um, but yeah, we're a little over 300 people and we have close to 10 people uh, based in the US, mostly management focused, the head of analytics, head of finance, um, I'm here. And then, you know, our head of rights is in Venezuela, our CDO is in Venezuela. Or we have a local head of finance there, head of operations is there, et cetera, head of customer service, everyone else is there. Uh, and I would say we had to be really intentional about how we set this up because when I, I actually started working on this uh, in November of 2019, but we launched in April 15th of 2020 and we did our first 12 orders that day, but that happened during COVID. When I started working on this, COVID was like this virus in China that like, you know, was probably going to go away. And when we launched, it was like full on lockdown and the country had actually closed its borders completely. So I couldn't even travel into the country at that point. And so we had to, when the baby was learning to, to, to you know, to crawl, not even to, to walk, uh, we couldn't go, the people that were based here. And so we had to figure out just effective ways of, of doing remote work and giving a lot of power and decision making to the people that are on the ground. And also talking about being intentional, how were you guys being intentional too about culture? Yeah, I think I, I think culture is a bit of a, a same thing, like a word that's complex to define. To me, corporate culture just means that um, a good company culture would be one in which the majority of the people in my organization would make the same decision that I would make faced with the same problem. And I think for that, we just communicate a lot. We just share our perspective. If we're going to launch a new product, for example, to give you an example, um, we recently in rides, uh, rides used to work the same way as Uber, meaning we set the price, you know, it's $5 to go from point A to point B. But we recently uh, launched an alternative called Cuadralo within the app. That means uh, to arrange in Spanish, as you know, but 
uh, it basically allows you to negotiate at the fare with the driver as the user. And we did that for a, for a few reasons, but um, it's an alternative to, to pay. It's a true free market. Um, we realized that we had a lot of orders that were cash, and we realized that on the ground, a lot of people in Venezuela has, have cash in dollars, but they don't have change. And if the ride is $5.6, you can't really pay in cash. It, and, and it's like a change problem. But now you can say, look, I have $5. That's all I have. I have a $5 bill. I'm just going to move with this. Uh, in a similar way, Maps doesn't work correctly in every city in the country. Uh, it mainly takes you through like the main roads, but it doesn't take you through smaller roads that might be the fastest way to get there. And so the algorithm might set a price that is wrong, um, that it that shouldn't be, that it's more expensive than it is, or that it's on the other way, it's cheaper than it is. And the bidding really fixes this. Uh, and and we were just able to, when we launch an initiative like this, we really involve a lot of people uh, and we talk to our customers and everyone is involved to the point that everyone understands why we're launching this. Um, I think that is just a way to, to build culture, you know, and, and just to drive people together and to make sure that everyone understands that we're building something bigger for that will affect the 20,000 drivers that we have on the ground and the 1.2 million customers that, that we had last year that purchased at least once. Now, obviously, as part of, of culture, too, I mean, I'm sure that vision, you know, was a big one and, and also something that you shared, too, with, with the investors that you got on board. So I guess to that, to that end, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Yummy is fully realized, what does that world look like? That world is a world in which over 40% of the population in Venezuela uh, uses Yummy. On a, on a monthly basis, at least one of our core verticals, whether it's a ride, a delivery, a ticket for an event, um, a world in which our digital wallet to be launched is, is live and being used by, by millions of people and is the leading peer-to-peer -peer transaction mechanism similar to how a cash app or a Venmo are uh, in the US. And it's a world in which... Um, that facilitates uh, credits and it facilitates access to financing for gig economy workers to, you know, upgrade from a motorcycle to a car or to get a better car. And for a merchant, it means additional capital for them to expand into a new location because we can clearly see that they are an anomaly in our marketplace in the particular delivery category where they operate because we pay them every week and we see how well they're doing in comparison to the rest. Um, and it's also a world in which all of those learnings from the deep penetration in Venezuela that we have achieved has been expanded into the other underserved countries in Latin America that are, you know, I think when VCs talk about LATAM, most of them are just saying, go to Mexico and go to Brazil. And I, I have the hope that Yomi will be a clear example of how a big business can be built uh, that isn't just in Mexico and Brazil. Got it. So, so I guess saying now, let's talk about the past but with a lens of reflection. So let's say we put you into a time machine here and we bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where, you know, you were still a get around. You were wondering what you were going to be doing of your own, you know, something that uh, where you thought that uh, that maybe, hey, you know, it's time for me to, to start something. Not sure. But, but let's say you are able to go back in time and you're able to sit down with your younger self right there. Right, right next to yourself, and uh, 
you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say to him that whatever happens, he should just remember that if the ecosystem, if the players of the ecosystem that he builds have a way to improve their lives because of the platform that you're building, your shareholders will win too. And that nothing is more important than that, than making the pieces of the ecosystem win. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Vicente, I would love to uh, reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, they can reach out to me on Twitter. My, uh, my handle is MetaBarce. So uh, MetaBarce, like my last name. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Vicente Salarce on LinkedIn. Um, or you can just send me an email, uh, Vicente at yummysuperapp.com. Um, please don't sell me stuff that I don't need. Uh, but if uh, you want to reach out, if you're trying to start a business, I'm, I'm happy to, to listen. Um, gone through it. Amazing. Well, hey, Vicente, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.